0: Welcome to King of Glory's Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this week's encouraging message. For more information, please visit kingofglorycc.com. Welcome with me, Rick Sampson. Thank you for that. I've got this thing I'll put up there. Yeah. Now, if I can just live up to that. I hope so. All right. We're going to go over Psalm 24 today. I want to go through that because I know we everybody's talked about the new name and things, and we're King of Glory, and we're also Generation Church, and I, I think all that's spoken to here in, in Psalm 24, so I just kind of want to go through it, and I want to look at it just the way it is written and see what it just says, or at least I'm going to tell you what it said to me. You're know you going to get out of it whatever God and what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about. So we're going to go through there. So let's open up to Psalm 24. As you can see, I've got all little note tabs around here because Scripture likes to help interpret Scripture. And so therefore, we're going to be going back and forth, and at least I'm going to go through some things that I think are important for us to do. I wanted to do today, do you know what's coming up on Friday? The new year. Rosh Hashanah, Rosh meaning head, Ha meaning the, the definite article, and Shana meaning the year, the head of the new year is coming up Friday evening, Saturday and Sunday of next week. So that's the new year of the Jewish civil calendar, It's not the new year of the sacred calendar. So I wanted to do some declarations today for the new year. Maybe we'll be able to do that next next week. We'll see what happens. So let's go to Psalm chapter 24. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started in the word. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you so much that you imparted to men all through the history, Lord God, to write down your words, to write down your precepts, to write down your promises, Lord God, to write down all the things, all the mighty things that you have done so that we can go back and we can study and we can learn. And Lord God, how you can then just impact our lives. How, Lord God, you can speak from thousands of years ago, into my heart today. Lord God, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts, Lord God, to hear what you would like to speak to us today through your word. And we thank you so much that we have that privilege to come before you and ask for you to tell us who you are. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right. Psalm 24, I'm not going to read all the way through it to start off with here, but most of you know, most of you read through this all the way, and it, and it ends up with the king of glory coming in, right? Well, reason I think, or well, at least looking back at some of the research I said, the reason why David wrote this psalm was because he had just recently brought the ark into Jerusalem. Do you all know that the ark was not always there? It had been captured. It had been somewhere else. It had been captured by the Philistines, the philistines had a whole bunch of tumors a whole bunch of bad things came on them because they were holding the ark of the covenant they gave it back they put it on a, on a wagon it went off to a, a place for for i think about 3 years kiriyat jearim like that and then they were going to bring it into jerusalem but they didn't go back and look and see how what was the proper way for carrying the ark did you know that when when moses and them when they were in when they were exodus God gave them a plan and told them, this is what you shall do. And he told them how to build the ark. Here's the type of wood. Here's what you are going to overlay it with. Here's are the poles and everything to carry it with. And then here's how you're going to cover it when you move out, because the ark of the covenant moved out and the nation of Israel followed it. He did not look back. He did not ask the, Levit- the Levitical priests to find out how to exactly to move that ark. So what did he do? They thought, well, we'll build a new cart. We'll get some new oxen. We'll put them on the back of that. And guess what happened? Did not work. Did not work at all. In fact, one man, I think his name was Uzzah, reached out. The ark, as they're coming along on the roads, roads are not paved like, like we have here. The roads are a little bit rough. If you ever go to the Middle East, you go see some of those ancient Roman roads that still are there. I mean, those guys are some pretty good engineers, but the roads aren't smooth like the asphalt and the concrete we got here. I know it can get tiring getting behind all those, all those workers, you know. What is it, our state, flower, Are those cones out there? At least that's what they say. And you get behind that traffic, and you're trying to go somewhere, and you've got a time frame. I know me, I don't know about you, but when I get my GPS set up, and it says it's going to take you this long, I look at it and say, challenge accepted. So when I get behind something like that, I get frustrated. So anyway, they were not smooth like that. What happened to the cart. Tilted. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't made to sit in the back of a cart. It was made to be carried by Levitical priests with the poles through the hoops the way God had designed it, the way God had told them they were to transport it. So when the man reached out to touch it, God killed him. And David was afraid to bring the Ark into Jerusalem. I don't think at that point in time they had the respect they needed for where the mercy seat was, where God himself came down and spoke to Moses face to face. Reaching out and touching the ark, prohibited. And he died. So later on, they did research. David did figure out what the proper way to do it was. He got the Levitical priests in there, and they brought it in, and every six steps, they slaughtered a bull. All the way in. I haven't, the logistical probabilities of that are immense. Bring it all away, because it was at Obed Edom's house for three months, and he was blessed beyond measure because the Ark of the Covenant was there. And they brought it in from Obed Edom's house into Jerusalem, bringing it in through the gates into a tent that David had erected to place the Ark in. So he is very. And, and, and when you look back there, when he's talking about it, it's talked about in Second Samuel six verses twelve through nineteen. It also talks about it in First Chronicles fifteen um, verse twenty five, and then also through all the way through sixteen verse three. And during that, in, in, the, in First in Chronicles, he wrote a big psalm of thanksgiving. But he also wrote this one, I think, just to remind us of the glory of the Lord coming in to Jerusalem through that Ark of the Covenant. So. That's the way, that's why he wrote this thing, and now the organization of this psalm, when I read through it, now again, I am not a commentary, I, I'm not one of these guys that, I'm, I have not studied all the Hebrew and all that other different things. so I can give you my opinion today of what I see in this psalm, okay, so it's my opinion, and that's, you can take that as it is, and I want you to be like the Bereans. I want you to study it and read it for yourself because you might, have some, you might come up with something different. I want you, you need to look at Scripture. You need to let the Spirit of God speak to you through your heart to let you understand what this is saying. So at least the way, I've, way I read it, the, he organized this psalm in three different sections when I read through it. At least that's what popped out at me. He's got three sections. Um, first one is the history or remembering the Lord and what he has done. And that's in, in Psalm 24. And that's verses 1 through 4. At least that's the way I look at it. We're gonna, I'm going to go through those in a minute. And then he talks about a generation that receives the Lord's blessings. That's Psalm 24, verses 5 and 6. And the last part of it, verses Psalm through 10, he's looking at the future. Where the king of glory comes in to those gates. I like when we go through the, um, the history that David relates to us in there, and we'll read through that right now, and let's see what it says. The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded, upon, founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David remembers the creation here. At least that's what I see in this in this verse. Showing the Lord's authority from the very beginning. And if you want to understand that, he talks about the world, and for he is founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers. Well, when he talk about that, go back to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning, God, or Elohim, the plural, it's very interesting. The very first verse of this entire Bible talks about the triune God, the plurality of the Godhead, right there in the very beginning. Created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was what over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. What's David talking about here? He's talking about he, the world, everything it contains, and those who dwell in it. He established it, he created it, and he's founded upon the seas and upon the rivers. Look what it says also in Genesis chapter one, then God's verse six, and God said, "Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters." He separated waters, liquid from here. All the way up there, of course, you know, God was preparing beforehand the water that was going to be necessary for when he destroyed the earth during the flood with Noah. Isn't that interesting? You have to have the waters there for it to come down. anyway, Anyway, and God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, there was morning, a second day. Then God said... Let the waters below the heavens be gather, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters He called seas. And God saw that it was good, for He has founded it upon the seas and it established it upon the rivers. David is referring back to the very creation of the world, showing the preeminent authority of God that he owns the world and all it contains because he is is the creator. Let's look up now. It says in verse 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. I think David is now remembering when the law was given to the nation of Israel. Kind of interesting. He was establishing them as his chosen people. Remember when the Lord God brought them out of Egypt? They were slaves. That's all they had known. I mean, 400 years they had grown up in slavery serving the Egyptians. God seized them out of Egypt, brought them all the way over. He set them around Sinai, and then he gave him his law. He established them and said, you are my People. Let's look at Exodus. Chapter 19. I'll get it, right there. get it right there. Verses 10 through 12. What is he saying here? He has clean, uh, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Verse 10 and 12. Then the Lord said, also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day, For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. That would be an amazing thing. That would be an amazing thing. God was letting them know, here I am. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. That's what he's saying here. Who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord? When the Lord God is up there, us as sinful people are not allowed to be there. What he's telling them. Remember what happened when Moses first was called to go back? He saw the burning bush and he turned aside because this thing's burning, but it's not being consumed. He gets over there and he he hears the Lord speak to him. What does he tell him to do? Take your sandals off. This is holy ground. The mountain that he was not there, nobody else was allowed to go up to, is a holy place because the Lord God was there. Who may ascend unto the mountain of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? We do have that. Exodus 19, verses 18 through 20. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently, When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Isn't that that cool? Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He's reminding them of when God established them as his people. He likes to look behind so he can look ahead. Then we come back to Exodus nineteen, actually verses twenty. Read right here, and said, Who um, who may stand in his holy place it says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and is not sworn deceitfully. Go to Exodus chapter twenty, verses one through six. What's in Exodus twenty? The law. These are the Ten Commandments that Moses brought back down with him. And so what happens is the one who worships the one true God and has not worshipped idols is what David is referring to, he has clean hands and a pure heart and has not lifted up soul up to falsehood. He has not gone after false gods. He's letting him know that this is the law that was established and we have to follow it or try to. We're not able to do it. Exodus 20, verse 16 also says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So David has come back through with all these first four verses. He's saying, the Lord God is in charge. We are his people. You're called by his name, and we are going to live for him. That's him looking back. You got that? Make sense? All right. Now I'm going to skip over the verses five and six. We're going to go through. Verses 7 through 10. It's very interesting. The Jews in their, in their culture, in their, his, in, in their culture, in the way they look at things, do you know how they know what's going to happen in the future? They look back in the past. They look back at history. And I think that's what David was trying to do so he could look forward to see what was going on with the, these next verses that we're going to talk about about the King of Glory. Verse 7. Now, we do know that Jesus comes in to, we talked about it today during communion, Jesus comes in triumphantly to Jerusalem. And David is looking ahead to when the King of Glory is coming into those gates. At this point in time, or or at this point in time, David is just looking for the hope of salvation that's coming. He doesn't know what you know, but he's not referring to when Jesus comes in to Jerusalem that first time. And why do we know that? Why do we know that? Because lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Now, Jerusalem is an ancient city, right? It is now, right? I mean, we're thousands of years beyond. We're a couple of millennia beyond when, when Jesus was here. So we call that an ancient city or ancient doors. If you, see the, if you go there, you go see these old, old cities. I mean, the United States of America is not a very old country. How many of you have been to Europe before and seen those castles? How many of you have been to the Middle East and seen those ancient castles and seen all those roads? When we're talking about our history, we're talking about this much, and they're talking about that much. I got the opportunity to go in. I got to go all the way down to where the sarcophagus was in the Great Pyramid in Giza. That is an ancient (laughs) ancient place. But even, even David, when he's talking about ancient gates or the ancient doors, lift up your heads, he's not talking about something old. Because ancient really means everlasting. He's not talking about the physical building here on this earth. He's talking about something that's coming later when the king of glory is going to come in. Let's look at that. get These are everlasting doors. They're not made with human hands because they have always existed. Isn't that what everlasting means? No beginning, no when. It is something that it was created of, and it exists up in heaven. So, when will the King of Glory enter in? And that is when I believe is when He enters, and He comes back with the second Jerusalem. And I think this is what David is referring to. Let's go to Revelation. This is some pretty good stuff, because we got a new heaven and a new earth coming down. Revelation twenty-one verses one through one through C, and I one through three, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. The new Jerusalem is coming. These are not ancient doors. These are everlasting doors, the everlasting gates that David is referring to. He's looking to the future. He is prophesying here about what is going to happen when Christ comes back to return for his bride. Now let's look at verses 10 through 12. The new Jerusalem, and he carried me, and this is what he's saying, the the revelator, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city. Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal-clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names were written on them which are those of the 12 tribes of the son of sons of Israel. Look at verses 22 through 25. And I saw no temple in it. Now, when Jesus first went into Jerusalem, what was in there? The temple, right? Because he 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 made a scourge and he drove out the money changers. You're making this a den of thieves. This is my dad's house, man. There's no temple in this one. It's interesting. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The King of glory is going to come in. Why? To reside there in the new Jerusalem they will be the temple. It's very interesting. It talks about it too. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. Lift up your head, O gates. The gates are open for the king of glory to come in. And so that's what this is. This is this is something, I believe, the first part was looking back at what God had done for them, remembering who God was, who God was for them. That is very important. But he's also looking ahead to a new Jerusalem. David didn't have all this imparted to him, but he, he knew something different was going to come, where the king of glory was going to come in. He will reside there. He will be the temple. That's pretty cool. So let's go back to verses 5 and 6. Who is this generation or who is a generation that's going to be living when that happens? Won't that be an exciting time? It'll be. I think it'll be exciting, but it will also be fearful. Because when the Lord God comes, everybody stood around that mountain when he was on Mount Sinai. Because you could see the mighty, almighty power of the Lord God coming down on that mountain, you'd be trembling a little bit. What happens when people just see angels? I mean, angels are not God. Most of the time, when you look through Scripture, what usually happens? They faint. You know, we we think about angels as being nice, little, cuddly little things or little cherubs, they're, you know... Most of the time we think of them in women. women. Angels are not women. They're not male. They are created beings, and they usually appear as warriors with swords. And they are something that you should be afraid of if they're coming to go after you because, you know, that type of thing. We got heralds that come in that type So if we're so fearful of angels, what's going to be like when, when the great and mighty day of the Lord comes? To be very, very different. So let's look and see who are these people, this generation that's going to be able to hopefully watch or be there and be prepared for when this great day of the Lord comes. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of the time on. Verses 5 and 6. He, this is the person, whoever, you know, who is, we're talked about when he says, who's going to be able to stand in the mountain of the Lord, who's going to be able to. You know, ascend into the mountain. That's everything. He shall re. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek Thy face, even Jacob. So, first of all, this 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 generation that David is speaking of, they have to have salvation, right? That's what it's talking about. See, a blessing is to be given, Psalm 115, verse 13. Go right there. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. I think in Proverbs 1, seven, reverential fear is the beginning of knowing or understanding who God is. The blessing is going to be given to those who fear the Lord. We're not talking about being afraid, you don't want to ever come... It's a reverential fear. Remember what David did when he tried to bring the ark in in the back of the cart? I don't think he had the reverential fear of the Lord about bringing the ark in in a way that it was not designed to be carried. And then he did when he saw the man die. And he put it aside in Obed-Edom's home for three months until he was able to figure out how we're going to get this in safely so no more people will die. He had a reverential fear of the Lord. The fear, the what it says, talked about that in Proverbs 17. Reverential fear is the beginning of knowing or understanding who God is. And that is a, what it says in Psalm 115. It is a blessing to be given to us. That we will have a reverential fear of the Lord. It's a beginning it, it, to help us understand who God is. A blessing is also a special favor, mercy, or a benefit or a favor, a gift bestowed by God. Don't you want to be blessed? Don't you want to have his blessing on your life? That's pretty cool. Ephesians 2.8, we do know that because this special gift is bestowed by God, for what it is a gift, you know, when we're saved? For it is a gift of God, not of works. For by faith are you saved through grace, that not of yourself is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. This is the blessing he's talking about. This blessing is going to be given to us. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord. Ephesians, I mean Romans five eight. What happened? God's gift to us and His blessing was for us that even yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see what I'm saying? David had, David had a whole lot of good stuff going on in his mind. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord. We will have salvation through Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. So first and foremost, the people that are in this generation, they have to come to the full knowledge of who Jesus is in their life. They have to give their life over to him. They have to admit and understand that they are sinners. They have no life outside of Jesus Christ. They have no way of ever being able to accomplish anything to to come into the Lord or be able to satisfy the Lord without having Jesus Christ died for them and accepting his death on the cross for us in our place so that our sins can be removed. So first off, you got to be saved. So guess what? I'm talking to all y'all. You're a generation that is saved. If you're not, get right with God. We'll talk about it afterwards. Anyway, so and righteousness from God of his salvation. When you get salvation, what also have, happens? You receive righteousness. It's also, the word here is also used as vindication and salvation. John six forty four, and And this is interesting, how you will receive this righteousness is because God has called you to bring you into that. It says, uh, John six forty four, No one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And vindication is clearing someone of blame or proof and is also proof of justification. What is Romans eight one? Go on there real quick. Romans chapter eight. Everybody likes to quote Romans eight twenty eight, but there's a whole lot more in this whole chapter. So what does it say? When we have in here, you shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. It says in Romans eight one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have vindication. You have righteousness through Jesus Christ standing in your stead. That's pretty cool. back here In Romans 8, verses 29 through 30, when it talks about justification, you know, it's right after Romans 8, 28. You quote that, but I love 29 through 30. It says, for whom he foreknew, like I said before, John 6, God calls you. You know, he starts tugging at the strings of your heart, right? We as sinful man, do we want to know anything about God? No, we don't. I want to, as a sinner, I want to hide from him. He's holy. We can't stand in that place of holiness. Moses had to take his shoes off. People had to remember that the Lord God is holy. We cannot be there without God being in our without Jesus Christ standing in our place. And the only way I ever came to him is because he called me. In John 6 he calls me. He said, you're mine. And what he says here in verse 29, for whom he foreknew. Right? Before you were born, God knew who you are. We know that how? Because in scripture it talks about before Samson was ever conceived, he told his mother, he says, You shall not have strong drink, nothing of other- he shall be a Nazarite from birth. So before he so. He knew you before you were ever formed. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom He predestined. These He also called, and whom He called, He also justified, and whom He justified, these all He also glorified. The vindication of Jesus is in here in Psalm 24, for that generation, and righteousness from the God of His salvation. You are vindicated through Jesus Christ dying for you on the cross. You are justified through him. That is very, very important. Because if you're not a Christian, you're not going to be part of the generation. You're not going to be the generation that gets to see the glory of the Lord coming through those gates. Because you're going to be cast into hell. I'm not making this up. You're going to be cast into hell. This is the generation of those who seek him. Those who call Jesus their Savior. Those who have got their salvation through him and through him alone. Nothing you can do can ever earn it. Nothing you can do can ever remove you from it. You are his. You are called by his name. You are his people. This is the generation who seek thy face, even Jacob. Jacob. So now, oh, I'm going to get back into that. They will seek him. What does it say in Micah 6, 8? Hard to find these things sometimes. There we go. So now that we have this salvation, so what are we supposed to do? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. People who seek him are going to be walking humbly with him. They're going to be doing justice. They're going to be loving mercy, that type of thing. Matthew 6, what are you supposed to do? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So the people who are called by God, those who are, have righteousness from the God of his salvation, that is the generation of those who seek him. So right now, you should be, as if you're a Christian, are you seeking God? Are you seeking His presence? Are you seeking to know Him better? Are you trying to learn more about Him? Am I going too long? Are you trying to... We need to desire to know Him, His character, and His presence. So, if we're desiring to know Him, His character, and His presence, how are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to live as this generation that remains until the great day when God comes back again? Do you know that we actually have in the Bible a whole bunch of, pla- a whole bunch of things in here that tells us how we can live? I hope you do know that. I'm going to give you a, a few things here. Let me move this over to the side. That I think are kind of interesting. Because Jesus talked to people in parables, didn't he? Why did he want to do that? In fact, he had something about he. It's a familiar situation alongside something profound or an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus had more than 40 parables. I'm going to give about seven of them today that I think are kind of important for how we're supposed to live. Because we're not just here occupying until he comes, right? I mean, Becca and Jordan are going off to Hawaii. Now that's pretty cool, getting to go to Hawaii. But the fact is, why are they going there? They're not going there to occupy and just reside in Hawaii. They're there to go forward to bring forth the kingdom of God, to bring out, let people know about the love of Jesus and how he can save their lives, right? We're not just occupiers. We're not just here holding ground and hoping we hang on and, 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 and we get to fight off the enemy, that type of thing. I mean, we just, all we want to do is we want to dig our little foxhole, put our parapets up, we're going to get our rifles out, and we're just going to stay here and we're going to hold this little spot. No! what are we supposed to do as the army of God, right? What it says, the gates of hell shall not be able to hold against you. What is a gate? A gate is a defensive measure. A gate that is holding you back or attempting to and it cannot withstand you, that means you're moving forward as an offensive force. It cannot hold against you, right? The gates of hell are established there trying to stop the Lord coming back and taking over everything, and Him being in charge of all of it, and the beast is going to be thrown into, into everlasting torment. We're not here to occupy. We're here to move forward. We're here to live for Him. Right. So let's go through some of these some of these things. I just uh, the seven of these proverbs that I think help give us an idea of how we are supposed to live. Okay. The first one you probably know. Luke 15 verses 11 through. 32, I think. Yep. The prodigal son. I am not going to go through the whole story about the prodigal son. I think you know most about it. If you've if you've been around Bible school, or if you've been around, you come up through even me raises a method as we learned about the prodigal son. And there are three major people in this story. You got the guy that runs away, you got the father, and you got the brother that remains behind, right? So we got those three different things, and so the, the, the brother, the prodigal, returns. And I think it's actually should this, this actually should be really titled, instead of the prodigal son, the perfect father, right? Because the son is coming back to this father. So the big thing that we, we need to understand about the prodigal son, and we need to understand it for our lives as we live out our life in Jesus Christ, is God's love is beyond justice or even human reasoning. The prodigal son deserved to be punished. He deserved, he, and he knew it. He deserved to just be a servant in his father's household. And that's not what the father did. The father said, welcome home. Let's kill the fatted calf. This son who is gone is now returned. That is the love we're supposed to have for others. Doesn't matter if they've had weird lives or whatever, things like that. We've all, have, have any of you here ever, ever not sinned in your life, right? Sins of omission, sins of commission. Have you never, I mean, think about it. None of us are perfect. None of us have ever gone through life with, we mess up. I messed up yesterday. I probably messed up today. I don't even know it. But the whole point is, we've got, we're all in this together. We're all like the prodigal. We don't judge him. We accept them back in. If they're going to seek God's face, let them come. Does it make sense? We're supposed to understand that God's love is beyond justice or human reasoning. And then what happens? The brother is chastised. Why? Because he's jealous. He says, here I am with my friends and stuff. You've never done any of these parties for me. The brother didn't understand that what was lost has now come back. And his dad tells him, the perfect father says, listen, listen. He was lost. He's now back home. We're going to rejoice because he's now here with us. That is what you, we should be doing as Christians living today. Honoring those people. Don't be nervous, Don't be jealous about them, whatever. All right, let's talk about Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. The Pharisee and the publican. Remember two men were up there praying? Get a Pharisee and a publican. What does the Pharisee do? He stands up there. And he's, he's raising his hands up. Thank the Lord God that I tithe and I do everything right. Now, he, right now, we already know that he's lying because what no one can ever, ever uphold the law that God had given to him. The Pharisees tried. The Pharisees, Paul tells them later, he says, why are you trying to make all these Gentiles to do all the things that we could never do ourselves? He was telling them that in Galatians. Say, you can you can't do that. So the Pharisee's up there saying, I do all these things right. I I tithe and I do everything I need to do. And thank God that I'm not like this publican. The publican, in the meantime, is up there. He can't even look up. Why? Because he can see his sin. He can see that he is not right with God. And he bows his head and he says, Forgive me. Which of those two... Left there justified. The publican, humility. As I said before, even like the prodigal son, which one of you have never sinned? We are all like the publican. We all need to come before the Lord God in humility. What does it say? We're supposed to humble ourselves before God, the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Have humility. The other thing is, we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to also esteem everyone else around us more than ourselves. Treat each other with respect, with humility. We've all been there. So, all right. Luke ten, verses thirty through thirty-seven. The Good Samaritan. I know you've all heard this story before. Who is my neighbor? And this is what Jesus was telling him. Who is your neighbor? And you have a Pharisee and a priest. Everybody else walking by the guy that's been beaten on the road, left to die. The Samaritan, that the Jews aren't even supposed to be associated with, is the one that comes up, binds up his wound, binds up his wounds, pays for the end. Let him till he gets better. So who was the good neighbor? The Samaritan was, not the Pharisee, not the priest, not all these other people that look up, they walk away. So what are we supposed to do for those people who are in trouble on this earth? Now, living as Christians, can you avert your eyes? No. I think it says in Scripture later on, it says, even though if I saw you, um, when they stare at all these people that are naked or people that are are in need, they stare at them, but they don't do anything to help them. What are you doing for the sick? What are you doing for the people that are hurt? What are you doing for the people that, that need your help? What are you doing for your neighbors in your in your neighborhood? Maybe you got some, uh, some strong, you know, probably not as strong as Joe Jane here that can't do their own lawn. and So you, maybe you could go over and mow their lawn. I don't know. Clean out their gutters. Go fix something. Reset their whatever. Are you being a good neighbor? If, being a Christian means you have to put things into practice. You have to do something. You can't just Matthew 13, verse 44 through 46, it's the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. It talks about the kingdom of God is like a hidden treasure that's in the dirt, in the ground. The man finds it. He goes and sells all he has so he can buy that ground so he can have that treasure. The pearl that he finds, he wants to go and sell everything. What is the kingdom of God to you? How important is it to you? Is it important enough that you would give everything to possibly obtain that, that's the way you should treasure it. That is the way you should be looking at it. Transforming experience of Christ's worth is more than anything worth more than anything in the world. You need to have that in your heart. Matthew 10, 20, verses one through sixteen, the laborers in the vineyard. There is no room for pride in heaven. What had happened in the labor in the in that vineyard? Yet some guys that started at the beginning of the day started picking grapes. Middle of the, middle of the morning, more guys come in to pick grapes. At noon, more people come in. All the way through the day, there's more and more people coming into the vineyard. They're picking grapes. They're working for the. And at the end of the day, everybody comes out to get their wages. First guys come up, yeah, they get their they get their wage. The guys that came in probably about ten o'clock or eleven o'clock. Those guys that got that that day's wage, guess what? The guys that came in at 10, 11 o'clock, they got the same wage. It's not fair, is it? People came at noon. People came at two. People came at three, and the people who came an hour before quitting time all got the same wage. And the first guys are saying, "What is going on here? How come? Why are they getting the same thing?" Well, Christ is not talking about the earthly wages you earn. He's talking about the wages you earn as you live your life as a Christian through here. There's no room for pride in heaven. And God rewards, his rewards are bestowed as he sees fit. It is up to him. In other words, I may have been a Christian 40, 50 years. You may have been Christian five minutes. And then he comes back. Guess what we're all going to get when we get up there? We're going to get the same reward. We're going to get the crown of salvation. We're going to get to be with the Lord forever. There is no pride there is no pride of place. None of us are greater than the others. We all serve the Lord the same. Okay. Matthew 7, I'm, I'm almost done with this. Verses 24 through 27, there's two foundations that he talks about there, the rock and the sand. And now all the kids, and you know the story. The wise man built his house upon the rock. What is that rock? The Word of God. Do you have an understanding of the Word of God? Do you have a desire to understand the Word of God? Do you have a desire to understand what he's saying to you so that you can continue to change. Do you understand that we are not supposed to be the same today as we were last month or the year before that, that we are changing? I actually had a guy that I knew that said, I'm the same as I've always been and I'm not ever going to change. That's not a Christian attitude. You should be changing. You should be looking into the word and the word should be changing you. It should be coming into you. You should be understanding more and more of it and desiring it to understand how you're supposed to live. And then on this, Luke 15, verses 3 through 10, the lost sheep and the lost coin. What happens with the lost sheep? What does the shepherd do? He's got 99 in the fold. He's missing one. What does he do? He goes, finds that one. What happens with the lady? She's got 10 silver coins. She's got nine. She's lost one. What does she do? She cleans out the entire house. She sweeps everything until she finds it. And the coin she has lost, is now found. Why is that? We are all individually important to God. You need to understand your place and your position in Jesus Christ. You are important. None of us, He doesn't want any of us to go astray. He wants to bring all of us in. And He will leave those 99 that are safe so He can bring back in the one that needs to be brought in. That is individually how we're supposed to live. I'm not, I've got. More to go on in how we should live corporately. You guys all right with that? I know I'm not, I'm starting to see a little bit of glazing over of the eyes and that type of thing. I want you to, because I want you to get this. You know, this is very important. This generation or a generation or the generation that David is talking here, is. I want you to get it. I want you to understand. I didn't go through all the 40, all, all 40 parables. I went through some just to let you know that it is important how we are living today, getting ready for when Christ comes back. It is important for us to live individually, what what he's talking about here. And you need to go through and read all these other parables. And of course, there is so much more in there in that New Testament and how we are supposed to live. And I don't have the time to do that. Your seats don't have the comfort level to remain long enough to be able to understand all of it. So I want, but, but the thing is, I want to let you know individually. You need to know who you are in Jesus Christ. You need to put your, you need to major on those major things. You need to understand the Word of God. You need to understand that you are important, that He loves you, that He came in, He He died in your place so that you could be saved. That is very important for us individually. Now, corporately, how are we supposed to live? Do you know he's got something in there too? Let's look at Revelation chapter 2. Most of you probably already know what I'm going to talk about. I gave seven parables. Why? Because there are seven churches that he talks about here. I'm going to quickly go through those because we're not just a name generation church. We are a generation that is supposed to be living in such a manner that people know and see Jesus Christ in our lives, here, at our homes, where you work, wherever you go, because the kingdom of God is with you. Let's read about what he says to some of these churches. I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. So seven parables, and now we got corporate lives, and there are seven parables. Representative churches here in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. The first one is the church at Ephesus. It's interesting, too. Maybe this is a little side point. How are churches named in the Bible? Huh? Locations. Very interesting. Maybe we should actually be in the church of Swan and Noah. I don't know. Whatever. But but see, God's got his own. You know, anyway, I won't that. Anyway, to so the Angela church in Ephesus, what do they have? They have perseverance. They endured it and did not grow weary. It's very interesting. Verse 4, though, what happens? But I have this against thee that you have left your first love. Let's not be a church that lost its first love. Let's not, let's not do what what these people do here. This is a representative church. And if it's a representative church, it could happen to any of these churches that are currently around the world. Let's not lose our first love. Repent. And what it says a little there, repent and do the deeds that you did at first. It's not That's not the ending. Yeah, I have against you that you left your first love, but that's not it. God tells them you can repent. You can do the deeds that you did at the first. The church corporately needs to do the deeds they did at the first. The church in Smyrna, Revelations 2, verses 8 through 11. Very interesting. This is not something he has against them, but he has a warning or let them know this is what's going to happen to them. He says... do not fear what you are about to suffer. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich And the blasphemy blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Do you not understand that it is possible that we could be going through some tribulation in the future? How is this church going to be able to withstand, uh, withstand it? Do you have the faith to be able to persevere through all that type of tribulation? Do you have the support of the other people in this congregation, the prayers, the support, the coming alongside of, that you need to be able to persevere and undergo it? And in here he's talking about some of these are probably going to be put to death. This is a warning, people. This is the generation that's going to have to be living through this to be able to see the King of glory coming into his gates. This generation will go through some of that stuff. That's why he's warning them in the church of Smyrna, the church in Pergamum. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. The nice thing he'd like about it is the fact that you hold fast to my name. They know who they are in Jesus Christ. to hold fast to his name. But I have this against you. What is that? However... You eat things, sacrificed to idols, and commit acts of immorality. You also hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, who, a form of Gnostic teachings which are heretical. These people, they may have their first love, and they do hold to his name, but what are they doing? They're worshiping false idols. Do you see churches around the world that may be possibly doing that? Let's not that, let that ever be named here, that we still hold God as preeminent. Christ is our everlasting Savior. The church in Thyatira, Revelation 2, it says, Your deeds, love, faith, service, and perseverance, and your current deeds are even greater than the first. So He's got a lot of praiseworthy things going on with this church. They're working. They're doing. They have perseverance. They're seeking Him. However, they tolerate Jezebel. She teaches and leads others to commit acts of immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. But again, he's not telling them this is the end. You're not just going to die in that sin. He says, hold fast. Hold fast until I come. Hold fast unto Jesus Christ and his teachings. The church in Sardis, you have a name. You think you're alive, but you are dead. It's very interesting. It's a lot like Samson. When Delilah got him, you know, got him in there, and she, he told her all these different things to do to be able to take away his strength. The important thing was before he told her to cut off the seven locks of his head. It says the spirit of God was not on him, and he did not know it. Let us not be said of us that we are a dead church. We think we are alive, but we are dead. No. We need to be alive to the spirit of God moving in our hearts. We need to be alive to understand, to seek out his presence, to continually move for him, move forward into him to understand him more so that we don't die on the vine. We need to be alive. It says you are dead. You think you are you think you are alive but you are dead. But again, he doesn't leave him there. He tells him, "Wake up. Remember what you have received and heard and repent." Next one. The church in Philadelphia, this is another praiseworthy church. You have kept my word and not denied my name. Keep the word of my perseverance. Hold fast to what you have and overcome. Hold fast. Do not not be overcome. The church in Laodicea, and this is the one that most everybody knows, whatever, you are neither cold nor hot, just lukewarm. It all, you know, he says, because you are lukewarm. I, yeah, I like drinking hot drinks. I like coffee. I like hot chocolate. I like cold water if I'm hiking, that type of thing. How many of you, man, cold water, especially after you if you mow the lawn behind a push mower on some of the days here that we got, when it's dry enough to actually mow your lawn around here and the humidity is so high and oh, it's no fun. Cold water tastes so good. What about lukewarm? You ever had that? Man, it is, it is no fun. When I was stationed in the desert that type of thing your canteen can only keep your water cold for so long and then you got to drink it. It's not very palatable when it's lukewarm. and that's why he says, I will spit you out. it is no ugh. it's not not very good. said you neither cold nor hot just lukewarm he wants them to be one way or the other. It says you believe that you are rich and you need nothing. He tells him you are poor you don't you don't even know what you don't have. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, repent. And he tells them to overcome. So all these churches, even though He may have some things against them, the Lord God is not done with them. The, Lord's not, the Lord God is not done with this church. The Lord God wants to pour out his spirit on us. The Lord God loves us. The Lord God has saved us. The Lord God wants us to live for him, to live out all those things, the purposes that he wants us to do in our lives to fulfill those things that he imparted to us before we were ever born. That's what he wants us to do. That's what he wants us to be. That is a generation church. Those people that are alive to him, that are looking to him, that are looking forward to the coming of the day, of the coming day when Jesus Christ comes back for them, to meet them in the air as the bride of Christ. Are you going to be ready? Are you going to be ready? Are we going to be a church like Philadelphia that we hung on, that we knew him, that we love him, that we're serving him, that we're letting other people know about him? Are we going to be that generation? Let's end with this. Matthew 25, verses 37 through 44. And that is why we are a generation getting ready because for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until that, the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there shall be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this. Yeah, I don't want to go about to the head of the house. The whole, the whole point of that is that we don't know when he's coming back. not telling us. Of course, we can look at times and seasons and probably understand that it may be soon, but it may be long off, a long ways off. But the whole point is, until the King of Glory actually comes into the new Jerusalem, entering in through those gates, we as a generation are to live for him until he returns. Make sense? Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much, Lord God, that you've given your word. Lord God, I impart to them what you want them to know about what we have talked about today. Every one of us has a spirit of God residing into us, Lord God. Just for everyone who's, who's heard this today, Lord God, just work in their hearts and minds and let them know what it is they're supposed to get out of this because we know your, your word does not return void. Lord God, your word is out there today. It is working in the lives of these people. Help them to stand up for you, to never deny the name of Jesus Christ. Lord God, to continue to perse- persevere, to continue to do the deeds, to continue to do the things, and to complete what you have purposed for them to do on this earth. For every one of us have a task to do. Thank you, Jesus that you love us. Thank you that you saved us. Thank you that we have your spirit residing in us so that we can live for you. Help us. Help us to be a light under this generation. In your son's name we pray. Amen.